we are living in someone's false ARG. This is what the Great Reset is. They're just creating what they want the next story to be. And we also seem to revealing right now to understand how this 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 realm works so that we can walk through it with with greater awareness and consciousness. So then going back to the whole thing of like, you know, why does mysticism work? Why does why is synchronicity important? Why is looking at rivers, looking at where you are important? Because that is a baseline reality which is deeper than the ARG. You are going to connect to something. That is the human experience. Hello. Mark. What's going on, Mike? How are you? I'm doing good, my friend. How are you today? I'm doing good. Just looking over some uh, some work here at my desk at the old helm. So what's the good word? What's been going on since the last time we spoke? Tough question. Uh, just getting prepared for my interview with Peter Champois, or Shampoo. I heard... I heard an interview with him, and I realized how to pronounce his name. So I'm getting ready for my interview with Peter Shampoo this afternoon or evening. And, um, you know, just hunkering down. We're both pretty far up there, so you know what the winter's like in the East Coast. Doing Is leaves, all that stuff this, this week. So that's really interesting because where I am in Pennsylvania – um, we've had a very warm autumn and mo most of the leaves are still on the trees and we're just starting to turn colors in my backyard right now. <laughs> They're almost all bare, uh, in my yard. That's funny. Definitely. So, so I want to hear what, uh, what, what is it that you heard in the other interviews with Peter that, um, you want to go down deeper with? Well, what was interesting was. So I don't know if this is the only podcast interview, but it's the only one I was able to find. And it was an interview with a Baha'i Faith podcast. So the interviewer had a, I don't want to say he had a bias, but he definitely had like a clear concerted reason for speaking with Peter. And he was more interested in how it related to the Baha'i Faith because I think Peter mentions how the Baha'i faiths, one of their temples, is incongruent with, uh, or is is congruent with the ley line that goes through Shelburne Falls. I think that's the Peacemaker one that we talked about a while ago. So they had an interview, and like I said, kind of centered around the Baha'i, but also a really good introduction for me Um to hear Peter and how he, how his cadence is, you know, how he speaks. Uh, and, and that to me is really important as an interviewer. Cause now I'm a little more prepared than I would have been 
you know, I was very nervous thinking like, oh no, maybe this guy will be like an old man. He'll, he, he hadn't done an interview before. Maybe he has a speech impediment, you know, all these things could possibly go wrong, you know? And, 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 uh, hearing him interviewed was such a huge relief. <laughs> well, what did you find out? I found out that he's very lucid. I mean, without just like repeating the information he shared, um, it was just a, it, it like I said, it was very comforting because now I know when I speak to him tonight a little bit more of what to expect. But I mean, they, they no touched speech. on the, the footnotes of his book. So it was a lot of well, diagraphy stuff. Well, I'm curious about what you discovered about his communicative style. He's not, he doesn't have a speech impediment, I'm assuming. No, no, he's, he's very much uh, like the heavy, deep Massachusetts voice. I don't know if, if you're all that familiar with that down where you're at, but there's a couple different accents in Massachusetts, and one of them is like a heavy, deep voice, and he's got that. All right, so this, this, this is my cultural touch points with, uh, with the Massachusetts <laughs> accent. So obviously I know the Goodwill Hunting South Boston accent, right? Nowhere close to that. <laughs> Nowhere close to that. That's what I know the best. Uh, I know the uh, highbrow Harvard uh, um, lockjaw. Uh, I wouldn't call that an accent, but I know that's a way, which I think of Massachusetts as well, but I guess that's both Boston. But I also know, what would you call it? Do you know, uh, God, I used to watch this guy all the time. Richie from Boston. You know, have you ever seen that YouTube channel? No, that sounds familiar, though. Uh, it was, I mean, within the, within the realm of, of, of YouTube conspiracy re, uh, channels back when, when that was a thing, uh, he, was, he was pretty prominent. But he had a very, very strong accent. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I remember that was half of the fun for me of listening to him was because it was that heavy-duty accent. Richie from Boston, I'll have to look that up. Goins, are you in front of your computer right now? I don't even know if he's still around on YouTube. He's probably been kicked off and he's on other platforms. Huh. Why? What's his what's his deal? God, so if I recall, um he was uh very much held a the perspective that everything's a friggin' lie. <laughs> and right and and he would he would take that uh and t uh tied in very much to um and there there's a totalitarian um assault occurring right now so it's those two sort of um perspectives and if i remember like a lot of the stuff he would do would be close-up pictures of the moon with his camera and I'll be like, this just doesn't make sense. He's like, if this is 237,000 miles away, why am, I, why am I getting such clear images and then comparing that to, um, like, let's say, city vistas that would be uh, in, the, in the distance and talking about and comparing the, the, the uh, um, resolution of detail of something which is supposedly 237,000 miles versus something which was, I don't know, like 50 miles away. Right. And so he would do that, and then it would always be tied in very much with uh, 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 New World Order and, and globalist, sort of, um, globalist sort of narratives. And so uh, I, always, I always found his work um, uh, informative, 
well thought out, balanced, and entertaining. Well, I definitely uh, can't say I found Richie from Boston, but I found a Richie from Boston on YouTube it's, with no uh, YouTube videos up anymore. So it could uh, be- R-I-T-C-H-I-E. Oh, no, I was not spelling it that way. Yeah, you got to add the T. Okay. Okay. Well, I I was going to say the other thing I did this week was um, – was I watched the Never Ending Story? Have you seen this movie? Uh, yes, but I don't recall it. It uh, it's uh, fantasy based, and there's a flying dog. A flying dog is one way to describe him. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's that's what I'm able to pull up. That's what I, that's what I got in my memory bank. But I remember I remember it being um, uh, very strongly allegorical yeah well it was it was definitely worth taking notes and i I took your advice you know about how to how to analyze a good movie and uh bring your notepad along with you so what'd you find out well I, i definitely noticed a theme um I don't know if this is biased because of all the things we've been talking about lately, but there was sort of a an undercurrent of Native American sort of symbolism, I'll say. Okay. And it starts with since you you've you've probably seen the movie based on your comment, I'm gonna have to bring you up to speed a little bit. Yeah, you got to bring you up to speed. So the boy, the main character, his name is Bastion. He uh, he wakes up from a dream at the beginning of the movie and has breakfast with his father. And you can tell that, you know, A, the, the boy's mother has died recently, and B, he's been having dreams about his mother. So the father is kind of, you know, this 80s stiff, you know, t- tie, suit and tie, drinking like uh, an egg uh, smoothie or something gross looking for breakfast, so, so let me you know. so let me ask you uh the so it begins in um contemporary times from when it was filmed probably when did it come out like maybe in the 80s or 90s yeah i think it was either 79 or 80 mid 80s but yeah it was okay. definitely the 80s and and yeah so and the, it's like a, a normal a normal american 80s family Right with a dead with a dead mom, right? Because they always throw in the dead mom, like you know that's a Disney really owns that uh, that that particular um, technique. And how old's the boy? He's probably like ten, eleven, like uh, prepubescent. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so that's important because what they're doing is in the viewer there 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 are going to be two viewers. There's going to be the viewer who is that age. And so they're really going to connect with the character. And then there's going to be the parents. And it's, a, you know, it, 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 it's satisfying intellectually for an adult as well. And what it does is the age of the main character will bring about that age time frame subconsciously in the, uh, in the adult viewer as well. Right. Okay. So we got, so we got that. So he, he's uh, in this situation. His mom's dead. Uh, his dad is trying to um, do the best thing he can win the situation and drink the egg smoothies. <laughs> he's drinking egg smoothies, and you get the impression that he's like a 
you know, not a very emotional guy, kind of trying to toughen his son up. And, and he's had this talk with him before. Um, and his son kind of mentions the dream that he had just before. And of course the dad shrugs it off. So shrugs it off. Just like, that's ah, just a dream. Dreams aren't meaning or dreams are just, you know, fantasy stuff like that. Shrugs it off. Like, well, son, Dreams are fine and all, but we've got work to do. We can't let our dreams distract us from the work we've have we have to get done. Right. So, gotcha. Okay. So that would be the beginning. And then the boy leaves off to school, right? And he's walking along and he, he must it must be like set in Chicago. It kind of felt like a Chicago movie. Um and they're walking he's walking along and these bullies come out of nowhere. And they're like, hey, weirdo, and and chase him down an alley and throw him in a dumpster. And then he gets out of the dumpster and he comes out, brushes himself off, goes back out on the street. And they're like, hey, why'd you, you should have stayed in that dumpster. So they start chasing him again. And he takes refuge in an old used bookstore. And the bullies run by and he's safe. And the old man kind of hears him, the bookkeeper, we'll call him, comes in uh, to the shop and he sort of growls at him like, hey, this place isn't a, no place for kids. Get out of here. You kids are all troublemakers. And, you know, he's kind of writing the boy off like just another punk kid. But Bastion, being, you know, more of a, a the sensitive intellectual type at that age, he's... He's like a little uh, offended, and he's like, I've read Robinson Crusoe, I've read Tarzan, and he starts listing all these books that he's read, you know, trying to prove to the bookkeeper, like, hey, I'm not here by accident, I, I like books. So so they the bookkeeper kind of warms up to him and says, well, you know, those books that you read, those books are safe books. Uh, this book I'm reading here, this is a dangerous book. And, you know, obviously that gets the kid 10 times more curious. And he's like, well, what, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? And he says, well, those books that that you, you know, and he's like, have you read uh, 10,000 Leagues Under the Sea? And he said, did you feel like you were Captain Nemo and the octopus was coming to get you and there was no way out? And the boy's like, yes. And he's like, and then there was a happy ending, you know? So he's basically explaining, like, you know, your books have safe, happy endings. My books, you know, pull you in. And and it might not end it well. Right? And, well, and I also want to point out um, modus operandi, as I said earlier, about what naturally happens whenever we find ourselves in a, uh, in a world of fiction. We unconsciously put ourselves in the place of the characters and particularly the character, which you're going to resonate most strongly with. And, um, the, the guy saying the same thing right there, he's like, you know, this is what happens. So it's like a further suggestion. Like he's saying, this is what happens when you read a book, the viewers watching that, but they're also aware that they're watching a movie. So it's, 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 a uh, um, part of the suggestion that even brings it in stronger to link in with the characters. Indeed. So, so go, so go on. So the the boy and the the bookkeeper they're having sort of a conversation and seems like the bookkeeper's trying to warn the boy away from the book but then a phone call comes in through the shop so the 
shopkeeper gets up and the boy grabs this big, huge book that he was reading, uh, the bookkeeper was reading, shoves it under his shirt and runs out the door. So this is this is basically, you know, for anyone who's seen the never-ending story, once he has the book and takes the book up to his, I think he goes into the attic of their school, you start to realize that as he's reading the book, he starts to become, you know, the character. He's interacting with the story. So this is just a full-blown ARG movie, in my opinion. With, but, without a doubt. Without a doubt. But the, the point, and go ahead. I, I just want to point out this other thing was was how then the 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 main character, the boy, what not Sebastian, but something like that, correct? Bastion. What was his name? Bastion. So Bastion, um, he then becomes exactly what the shopkeeper was. His first instinct was that this boy would be, which would be a nuisance, a problem. He steals his friggin' book. But there was there was a sort of like gleam in the the shopkeeper's eye as if he kind of expected this to happen. I don't know if that was foreshadowing, but the boy no, did, I, did leave a book saying, "Don't worry, I'll return your book." So it wasn't a, it wasn't quite an act of uh, deception. It, it was well. I would say, if anything, it was an, uh, it was the act of a hypnotic implant done, as you just indicated, done purposefully by the shopkeeper. He had the gleam in his eye. He's like telling him, he like you know, it's 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 he's stepping into the boy is stepping into the shopkeeper's, uh, and and I'm not saying the shopkeeper is necessarily good or bad as much as the shopkeeper is aware of of what he's doing for this boy. He's bringing him in. He's setting the stage in the boy's mind. He's setting the stage in the viewer's mind of your story, your life becoming intertwined with this other with these other stories, right. And so it becomes really obvious when I think it was either uh, a, a mirror or some aspect of the story that connected to the boy reading the book, right? So the character, Atreyu, you know, he's the only one that can save the queen, right? So he starts reading the book and, and they go into the story and Here's where the Native American sim- symbolism kind of came up more heavily. So they have they have like a, a couple like creatures sitting around a fire, and then this big rock biter guy rolls in, right? And he says he's from the north. Well, the other two say, "Well, we're f- I'm from the south," and the other guy's like, "I'm from the west," you know. So already we have like the four directions kind of coming in as. Uh, motifs to describe these characters you know like this is the snail rider from the west the bat rider comes from the south and the rock biter comes from the north and they're all escaping the nothing right the nothing is is... there is there no east well i think i think east of where they are um is where they're heading right so they're all going east i don't know if if the um, maybe Atreyu is the one from the east or something, but there was that like obvious putting that out there, like oh, I'm from right, the north, right. I'm from the west, I'm from the south, you know, kind of right. And, and it would make it would make sense then that Atreyu, who is the the character who's who discovers these these three, he would complete the fourth. He would be the fourth by well, he if a fourth isn't. 
if the fourth doesn't become there because the because I'm I'm hearing you that so what a couple things are happening one it's uh, from a esoteric sort of perspective the um, the act of calling in the four directions occurs right you know that's what the so you have that um, uh, you could even look at it as like and and four comes up a lot like I'm also thinking like four <laughs> four horsemen of the apocalypse Whoa. like all of these different symbologies because four can show itself in so many different ways but but undoubtedly whatever way we want to look at it they uh that is definitely being obviously invoked uh the other in the, side of the it conscious was was that the boy reading was from the east that was my and maybe uh, well i would say the boy <laughs> the boy is the the what is what is the the book's main character um in the in the book book it's a treyu and in the movie a treyu a treyu it's uh bastion a, okay so go on so go on I, you've got me hooked so i want to keep <laughs> going with it so they they all come together and at first they're like oh who the heck is this big rock biter guy but then they realize they're all on the same mission and they're all going to the same ivory tower to escape the nothing and save their people right and a treyu hasn't come in to the picture yet so they all head off and they're escaping this big scary you know windstorm looking thing with clouds and they make it to this ivory tower and they sort of sneak in and and they're looking over the wall and they see that there's a meeting going on all the people from all the land all the different creatures are are trying to see the queen who you know is the only one who can save them she's the only one who who can save them from this nothingness that's taking over their world. So the the ambassador to the queen is kind of holding court, and he's like, well, the, the queen uh, is is too sick, and it seems that you know her illness is connected to the nothing somehow. And the only one who can save us is a hunter from the, from the uh, plains who hunts the purple buffalo. So this kind of uh, was like an obvious, you know, mm-hmm. hint at Native Americans. Not explicitly, but just, you know, kind of seemed uh, interesting. And then the other... What, is, what, what are the... What are the uh, and I, I'm assuming that you know this, but can you, can you just talk a little bit about the, um, the, the, the story around the white buffalo? Well, the white buffalo is uh, is like a a deity, right? It's like the it's like the uh, divine symbol of of like a a sacrifice or let's see, yeah, it's like providing medicine. You know, it's uh, I have the I have it right in front of me in my book. The Lakota once believed, uh, or sorry, the Lakota once lived beside a lake far to the east and after a hard winter they were forced to migrate two scouts sent ahead suddenly encountered a beautiful maiden dressed in sage holding a buffalo skin bundle one of them rushed at her lustfully but she brought down rattlesnakes and he was reduced to bones she instructed the other to construct a circle of green bows and told him or bows and told him she would reappear in front of the entire tribe before the people, she unwrapped the pipe and instructed them in the songs and prayers of the five great ceremonies. She told them that they would always be a nation if they revered the pipe. 
Then she disappeared, and the people saw only a white buffalo calf on the prairie. And it goes on and tells sort of a more extended version of that myth. Is that what you had in mind? Exactly. Because, no, I didn't have that off the top of my head. I'm lucky I had this little book here. (laughs) So so the white buffalo is a symbol from, from from a Lakota tradition. The white buffalo is a symbol of what? Is it purity? It's it's something positive. It's on the positive side of of the equation. Is that correct? Yeah. And so now we're hearing in this, and I'm bringing this up because you brought up like all of the the Native American symbolism in which you read into uh, when when you saw the film. And so now they're hunting the the purple buffalo, correct? In the in in Never Ending Story. That's the that's what's said. Yeah, you don't see it, but you you hear it. Right, right. That's that's part of the story. Okay, and so I'm just thinking about then the you know the playing with that and the colors of um, particularly as purple is very correspondent to when we think of monarchy. You know the right. the monarchs, particularly Tyrian purple, is what it's known as, and white being like a purity. But nonetheless, I'm just you know I'm just kind of going. Um, hearing what's popping off or uh, what's capturing my attention uh, listening to the story. So, okay, so they're hunting the purple buffalo. That's what we're told, that the only person who can possibly save the, the land they're in from the nothingness is this hunter who hunts the purple buffalo on the plains. And, you know, the uh, the three people from each direction, right? The rock biter, the, the bat guy and the snail rider, they're all kind of sneaking into the ivory tower thinking like, Oh, what's going on? You know, they're kind of eavesdropping. And then, uh, the boy appears and they all kind of sneer him off. Like you, you're not the hero from the plains. You're not the hunter, you're a child, you know? And he's like, Oh, well, you know, if you guys don't want me to help, I guess I'll just go back, you know? <laughs> and they're like, wait, wait, wait. So it's you, you're a Treyu? And he's like, yeah, I'm a Treyu, you know? Uh, why did the queen bring me all this way just to mess with me? What the heck's going on? You know, he kind of, for a kid, he has like a very um, sort of adult uh, attitude. Like, oh, all right, I'm just going to go back to doing my job if you guys don't need my help, you know? Very, mm-hmm. uh very, it seemed almost like utilitarian, like simplistic. Uh, they were trying to portray this person as like a very nomadic, you know, kind of. Again, it, it just struck me as like Native American, the way Native Americans have been portrayed in in uh, movies and whatnot, with a certain sense of, I don't know, really the right word to describe the personality, but it's like a. It's like a humility, but a quiet kind of arrogance too. Like, uh, well, this is what I do, and and you know, I'm I don't have time for anything else. Kind of attitude. So, so is is there a similarity between that that quality which you're describing that he's presenting, and the the values back in in his regular 1980s life, the values that his father was trying to instill. Like, you know, as you said about dreams and we get back to work and stuff and they're utilitarian. Like, uh, is there a, are there some similarities and some, some differences within those, those two different approaches? 
I wouldn't doubt it. I didn't even consider that until now. But yeah, I I think that that would make sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we're that's kind of so so, so we're seeing that. So we're we're starting to see like the the different themes that are being invoked in the you know in the characters, but then also in 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 the viewer. Like this is what's being brought out in in like the uh, called forth within the the subconscious. Um, so, but, and, and they could be shown in different ways, but it's, it's, that's a very good way to do it is you, you approach the same quality from different perspectives. Um, but okay. So go on. So go on. So they realize, you know, all oh, this boy is who he says he is. He is the hero. And, you know, he, he's told, leave your weapons here and, and go off on a journey. You have to meet the Southern Oracle, right? And she's the only one who will be able to tell you what to do in order to save the world from the nothingness, right? So he hits off on his horse. The horse is named Atrax or Ajax, something like that. And um, it just felt very, very interesting, the names. Atreyu and Atrax or Ajax. It just felt very um, constellation-sounding. So, okay. So they head off and, you know, there's a bunch of scenes of the, the boy riding the horse and he eventually makes it to a swamp and he's trudging through the swamp and in that narrator sort of way, he remembers being told that, you know, this is the swamp of sadness and you can't, you can't stop moving because you're going to sink and anybody who stops in the swamp of sadness just sinks to the bottom. So he's trudging along and his horse sinks, you know, it's a sad, sad part of the movie, especially for a kid. I remember being really sad seeing this when I was like six, six or seven years old. So I, I, I kind of rewatching it, I guess I should have mentioned that, but he heads through the swamp, loses his horse, big, sad moment. And then here's the part where I was like, boom, native American again, He's, All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause you right there. I'm going to pause you at this exciting thing because I want to go and say this before we get into the next level. So we're seeing him go on the journey. So this is now we're getting into like the journey of life, if you will, because we, this is a big movie. This is a big movie which can be looked at in a lot of different ways, but it's a big movie in terms of it's speaking to large archetypical patterns of what it is to be human, the never-ending story or, or, or what have you. And so we're seeing throughout the uh, – when he goes on, on the journey, which he has to go through, at some point he's going to go and hit the swamp. And so the swamp is like when the human goes on their journey, whatever that may be, like you know, the journey is metaphorical or, or literal, but even if it's literal, it's still metaphorical about what's going on within the, the – you know, I'll use the word maturation for lack of a better word, maturity in every, in every sort of, sort of way. When you go through that journey, you're going to hit the swamp and the swamp is the swamp of sadness. And it's telling you, it's like, listen, you're going to, you know, you can't stay in this swamp. You're going to go to the swamp. You got to go through the swamp on your journey after you've been doing this whole thing. Then you get to the swamp and you're just going to have to keep on trudging through. And so then we go and we see his horse dies. All right. And so the horse is, is one, it's sad. And part of this is something's going to die. Something's got to die. And it's going to be even sadder in the, in the swamp of sadness. And if we really want to get into this in a psychological sort of like mystical, uh, you said constellation, astrological perspective is um, 
the horse is symbolic of the animal nature of him. You know, the, the best example of that, if we're going to use constellation slash, then, you know, I'll jump over to, to, to astrology is the, the, the Sagittarius archetype where it is half man, half horse. And it talks about the, this archetype is all about the, 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 um, different natures within man, the, the higher nature, the human nature and the more animalistic nature and Sagittarius is kind of like the dance between those two. And part of the Sagittarius journey is the, the, the horse has to come underneath the, um, the control of the, of the rider, the maturity where the, the higher mind takes control over the lower, more animalistic mind. And so we're seeing the same sort of, um, motif being played out within this film where the horse dies, it's more of a symbolic uh, nature of that that part of him which is more animalistic, more. And when I say animalistic, I don't necessarily mean that in in uh, a savage way. I mean that in terms of an instinctual way, like responding on survival sort of mechanisms, like you know, the our brain part of the of 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 the brain complex. Like as that dies symbolically, and though that is a sad thing, then um then one comes over to prob for to what I think you're gonna get at is like once the horse dies, once you go through that, then what comes afterwards? Well, he sees this mound in the distance and he says to himself, like, is that the mound of Morla? You know? And Immediately, I'm like, okay, mounds back to the Native American symbology. But to further it, you know, it ends up being like a mighty, mighty ancient tortoise. And he climbs up to the top of this tortoise's back. He doesn't realize it's a tortoise at that point, but he's kind of looking around from the top. And then, you know, he wakes this being up and the being kind of gets up from its sort of sunken place and, and shakes him off of the top of her back. And you realize like, Oh, this is a very ancient being. It's a, it's kind of like a sort of has the voice of a, of like a woman almost. It's kind of like a old woman sounding turtle. And she, she's like very bothered by him. Very foreign, you know, not warm or motherly at all. It's very like uh you know, who are you and why are you in my swamp and what are you? And she keeps sneezing and knocking him out of this tree, right? Because he's so small compared to her that he has to climb up into this tree and, and sort of yell, yell at her. So, so let me ask you this. How does this character compare to, in a general sense, in terms of like attitude and how she meets the boy, um, uh, how does how does the she compare to the um the book seller that's a very good comparison yeah they both have this same sort of um confrontational friendliness but at the same time like i i wouldn't make a direct comparison but yeah definitely they definitely well they're meant to be juxtaposed Mm. juxtaposed not necessarily to say they're the same as much as like where are they similar and where are they different uh, and from what it kind of sounds like, and I don't know where you could go with this. And so this one thinking right now is, is where we saw the bookkeeper, the bookseller was, as you said, he had this sparkle in his eye and he was, you know, be- beneath, beneath his gruffness was, was, was like a soft gooey center. And we're not necessarily seeing that with, with, uh, 
the uh, if if we want to go with this uh, a grandmother esque archetype, she's a little bit more stern or something like that. That's yeah. what I'm hearing right now. Right. But and anyway, so let so where does she take him? So or where does she go with this? There's some sort of information that he sees in her that he's trying to like question her. You know, you know, you know what I need to do to stop the nothing, and and she's very like Yoda like in the way of like kind of subverting his expectations. You know, he gets some answers from her, but not the whole truth. Now, something starts to change in the sky. The wind picks up, and he realizes that he needs to get out of there. And he's running, running, and this is when we see, again, because you kind of get hints of this character throughout the movie. I just haven't mentioned him yet, but this big, black, snarling wolf with green eyes and a big, you know, ugly nose that he's sniffing around with. So after he gets what he gets from the turtle and information, he's, you know, making his way through the swamp, and this wolf is basically, you know, seen in the distance, ch- chasing him down, coming right after him, and in the a split second, you know, no further would he have survived. You know, this, the wolf was just about to get him, and this luck dragon, as it's called by you, the dog creature, <laughs> the the luck dragon flies out of nowhere and picks Atreyu up and saves him, and they fly away into the sky, right? So this luck dragon, it's like very griffin-esque, very dragon in the sense of like a long serpentine body, but but furry and and like you said like a dog almost it looks like a big giant dog but with kind of the proportions of a dragon and and wings that are kind of puny compared to you know like little dainty wings not like what you would see in some of the like medieval drawings of dragons with like huge scaly wings it's just tiny little wings and he takes Atreyu to some you know what looks like a rocky mountain cliff and Atreyu wakes up, you know, his wounds are dressed. He realizes like, oh, where the heck am I? Kind of wakes up and pulls this big giant paw off of him as the dragon's kind of like taking care of him. You know, you get the sense that, oh, this, these two things are, are helping one another. And the dragon kind of wakes up and says like, where are you going? What's, what, what's the rush, you know? And Atreyu is on his mission. He's like, oh, I gotta make it nine hundred ninety nine thousand miles to the to the Southern Oracle. Uh, that's what he. That's the information he got from the turtle. How far do I need to go? And the dragon's like, Well, I, you know, I got you. Uh, I got you nine hundred and eighty two thousand miles uh, there. You know, you only have nineteen miles to go. He didn't say that 19 miles part, but like my mind, I heard the numbers and I did the math. So this, this dragon gets him, you know, 19 miles away from the Southern Oracle. And before he, uh, before he, he like lets him go, he's like, oh, you got to go see the, the, you know, my friends. And his friends are these little like gnome people. You can't tell they're gnomes until they they kind of come into the picture and they're next to Atreyu, but they're much tinier than the boy, and he's a child. So they're like little people, and one is a a witch and one is a scientist, and they're like old, 
they're kind of arguing with each other over who's going to take care of the boy first. And, and the woman's like, Oh no, he's not going anywhere until he drinks my potions. And she's like eating bugs and putting bugs inside of the potion. And, and the scientist boy guy is like, you know, Oh no, I need to teach him all the science. And, and he's got these little books in front of him, and he's drawing what looks like, um, an Egyptian type being with like wings and breasts out and like a Egyptian face. So immediately I'm like, okay, here comes some more symbolism. So they, they help the boy out. The boy goes over to their little house. He like sticks his head through the window and she gives him a potion. And, and then the scientist takes him over to this little telescope that he had built and he shows him what the Southern Oracle is. And it's, you know, what you see in his drawing, which is like two golden statues with wings, Egyptian style heads. I don't know if they had like reptilian almost. Yeah, they had like almost bird. They're kind of like griffins with the with the head and the breasts of a female. And they're standing facing one another kind of at both sides of this gate that Atreyu has to pass through to make it to the Southern Oracle. And the scientist is like, oh, look, someone's coming right now. And you see this man ride up with armor on a horse. And the scientist warns Atreyu. He says, see what's going to happen. Uh, you know, only the purest of heart make it through this gate. I forget. I think they called it even the Sphinx Gate or something along those lines, sounding Egyptian. And the, the, the knight rides up to make it through the gate. And the, the Sphinx's eyes open up, this bright blue, and a big blue laser beam shoots out and, you know, annihilates the knight, and he falls, and his horse falls, and the armor's all over the place, and you see that he's, like, cooked. Like, they zoom in on his face, and it's it's like he's been fried. So, you know, this, this gate <laughs> becomes very ominous and scary, and the scientist is like, see, you know, this is what happens. It, you know, and before he can even like turn around to see if Atreyu's still listening, the, the boy's already on his way, you know, trying to run down and run through the gate because he's like, oh, you, all you have to do is be pure of heart. I can do that, you know. So he runs through, runs up, gets up to the gate, has that moment of like, oh, no, can I do this? And, and right as he's hesitating, the eyes start to open. And, you know, this is the big moment, the teaching, learning moment, right? He, instead of being scared, instead of hesitating, he runs, you know, straight through the, the um, oracle. And, and they shoot the laser, and he jumps just in time to dodge the explosion. And he makes it through, and it's this big, you know, happy moment. The scientist sees him through the telescope make it through. And, you know, I... The, the very quickly they're just like right on to the next scene and he's walking into like this snowy world and he faces this mirror and this is when he kind of faces bastion right because the mirror the character looks in the mirror but he doesn't see himself he sees bastion right so this is when it kind of comes to this point of like you are the main character in the story, you know? This is like that law of attraction, make your own reality type thing that they were laying down as the, the you know, 
whatever you will for this movie psyop philosophy however you know however you want to look at it that's the message they're trying to get across to the viewers like you know bastion is atreyu you are a part of the story right and even further like you watching are a part of bastion's story right that's kind of the the magic of the movie and bringing you into the story and and even like bringing you into the book so you know without laying out the whole movie we're laying out the whole movie. You're not moving. We can't go this far. So let me ask you a question. Go ahead. What was what was what was um, what was the boy's response when he discovered or when he saw Bastion in the reflection? Was he pleased? Was he oh, confused? It was, was he? Yeah, it was. And this was. I think this is the second time. I should have mentioned the first time it happened. There was sort of like this moment of no. You know, he's shocked. He's like. He's a little scared, but yeah, when this happens, he's, he almost stops reading, you know, and he almost like shuts the book and he can see that it's getting late, you know, school's already been out. That was the first kind of uh, moment when he realized he was the character when the school bell rang and he was still in the story, you know, and, and he kind of gets out of the story and goes to leave school and he's like, no, I got to stick around. Well, this happens again. He has that same sort of shock of like, oh, wow, I am in this story and and is about to give up and then continues reading. And, you know, the window breaks and the storm is coming in through the window. So this in adds the school to, in right. the school. OK, OK. Right. So, so his his outer reality is beginning to reflect what's happening internally through his reading. Right. Like there's a there's a bleed over. Exactly. So this is okay. when this is when you know the the climax of the movie really kicks up and and he realizes you know what he has to do. So what does he have to do? So he goes through the mirror. Atreyu walks through the mirror into the land where the Southern Oracle is, and when he gets to the Southern Oracle, the Southern Oracle is breaking to pieces. And the nothing is destroying everything. And, you know, at this point, I should have mentioned that uh, Atreyu and Falcor, the, the luck dragon, they were, they were together and got split up. And, and Atreyu kept going without this magic necklace. That's the other thing I forgot to mention is, is the emblem on the book cover is the magic like uh, pendant that the character in the book wears. So it's it's like this metal Ouroboros infinity snake. It's two snakes and their their bodies are wrapped up in the figure eight, but their heads are biting each other's tail. So it's almost like two snakes completing the Ouroboros. So this this symbol, it's like on top of the book. It's not just on the book. It's it's like um, you know, 3D it, in in his in his book reading reality on in reality reality on the cover oh, of the book it's like an of actual the book pendant. not the movie yeah. okay okay right. oh so that's how they they do the the merchandising of the book <laughs> in and in the story how does he uh, how does he acquire the pendant so the was pendant, it given to him by yes. by the by the luck dragon. 
No, it was given to him when he left for for the mission. So in the ivory tower, he he drops his gotcha. bow and arrow and he receives this pendant. And and yeah, the connection I'm trying to make is in the in Bastion's world that pendant is on the cover of the book. Right. So, okay. Okay. So this pendant gets lost, and you know Atreyu continues on to the Southern Oracle without it. And at one point, uh, the luck and the luck dragon's like looking for it, right? So, oh no, I'm sorry. I'm now mixing things up. So, the, so he gets the information from the Southern Oracle, which is that he has to give the world a name, you know, and he's kind of confused by this. He's like, you have to give the queen a name. Um, and the queen becomes like this synonymous with the world, right? They're, she is the world, right? The nothing is destroying her and therefore it's destroying the world. So she, right. they have to give her a new name and, he sets back off, and I think it was like a big storm that knocks him off of the luck dragon, and he loses this pendant. And you know, he k- keeps going; he's continuing. And as, does the pendant give him any power? No, it, it doesn't. It doesn't like glow or anything. There's nothing. It's just there. It's just on his neck. And when he loses it, he kind of loses uh, sight of what he's supposed to do. And okay, he, okay, okay, okay. He runs right. into he runs into that rock biter who we see at the beginning of the movie and the rock biter is like, you know, he's out, he's very sad, he's very like, yeah, the nothing's just going to come and get me, you know. Uh, and you realize the reason why he's so sad is cuz the other two characters he was with at the beginning of the movie, they got taken away by the nothing and and he's saying, "My hands, they're they were so strong. How come I couldn't hold on to them, you know? And so it's just another moment of like, oh, no, sadness. The world's ending. What are we going to do? And and Atreyu realizes like, wow, I am the only hope. I got to do something. So he runs back to, uh, you know, just in any direction. And that's when the luck dragon picks him up and they're flying. And now they're A second in- time. The, the luck dragon found him a set, the second time. Right, the luck so, dragon's like a- basically this this kind of like in the last in the nick of time comes and picks him up. So yes, the second time, and they're flying, and at this point there's really no world. It's just like asteroids in space and a boy on a dragon, and they're with like, the pendant. Right, they got the pendant, and they've got the the information they need to potentially save the world. So. You know, the luck dragon's like, don't worry, we'll find it. And this is when the Orin, which is the name of the pendant, uh, comes in handy because it starts to glow. And that's when they see the ivory tower and it's floating basically on its own rock in space. And you see all the other pieces of of what was the, you know, Terra or Earth uh, floating around. And, and it's, you know, just that ivory tower. So they... Fly in and and nobody's in so the let, tower. Let, let it's me, empty. Go ahead. <laughs> let me clarify. So as you're describing what was seen with these different floating parts of Terra, are we under the impression that the world has blown up, or are we under the impression this is what it's always been, and now we're seeing it from a different perspective? I hadn't thought of that. I think it's the that the the world is literally crumbling to pieces. Right, right. And this is what's left. The, the tower is in itself is somewhat intact. Right. 
Right. But it's only on a small piece. It's no longer like it, we're starting to see the breakdown of, of all the pieces. Okay. And so it's, it's kind of like at the last moment for the tower too. Right. And now, now in, in this, okay. So now I'm remembering exactly what I missed. So before the luck dragon picks a tray you up, the wolf, okay, has this moment with the, with the boy where he explains to him, you know, what's going on. And it happens in the temple, this sort of temple where Atreyu's story is on the walls. And this is the second, you know, or third time that the boy, the story, and the character become one because he sees that, like, oh, this mission that I've went on is, like, recorded on these walls. They knew what I was doing every step of the way, right? And he sees that the story is inexplicably or inextricably tied into the world. And like as the story crumbles, the world is crumbling. And you know, the the wolf, what he says to him, and this is before the luck dragon um comes in and, and sort of saves not saves him, but you Stick with me. I'm trying my best here. So you're doing a great job. You're doing a great so job. So the the wolf, yeah, uh, you know, he comes out of nowhere, and they're in this sort of like maze like area with walls and stone, and the rocks are all crumbling around. And like I said, the wolf's kind of explaining like, oh, you know, the reason why this is happening is because nobody cares, you know, about the stories anymore. People. People aren't reading the stories, so you know I've I've been sent by the nothing to help you know kill Atreyu, and you know I lost him in the swamps of sorrow, and the boy's like I'm Atreyu, you know, and he's like if we're all gonna die here, I'm gonna die fighting, you know, and the wolf is like oh okay all right cool <laughs> let's and he sort of jumps on him and so let me Atreyu I want to I want I want Yes. I want to be clear about what the wolf is is telling, uh, or is, is is expressing. So, is the wolf the wolf is saying because the people because all the people have forgotten the stories, and the stories are what holds us together. Then the void is doing its job to destroy it all because there's no sort of connection to the stories and what the story does. And so, the wolf is going to go and kill and kill Atreo because the stories are already falling apart and this is the main story or at least what we're seeing right here and so this is kind of like the final piece of the destruction of actually taking out the main character so all the stories can go away and so we go back to the void is, is that kind of what the what the wolf is doing like I'm just doing my job I got to take you out because it's all going away and and you got to go away right right and and basically you know Atreyu in that defiance, like kills the wolf. And that's when the luck dragon comes in and they go to the ivory tower. So I left that part out and, okay. and you know, yeah, basically that's what the wolf was saying. And I'm, I have the, uh, that part recorded. Perfect. If you come any closer, I will rip you to shreds. <sighs> Who are you? I am the Morgue. And you, whoever you are, 
the honor of being my last victim. I will not die easily. I am a warrior. <clears throat> Brave warrior. Then fight for nothing. But I can't! I can't get beyond the boundaries of Fantasia. <laughs> What's so funny about that? Fantasia has no boundaries. <laughs> Let me ask a question. Um, I could not make out the word which uh, was used for um, the thing that has no boundaries. Oh, Fantasia. Fantasia. So and they said this is the land of human fantasy, and uh, right, and and he's that's the part I forgot. The the you know the turtle said he has to go, you know, beyond the boundaries of Fantasia. One of these, you know, people along his journey told him this. And, and that was the point that was really confusing for them. You know, what does that mean? Who's beyond the boundaries of Fantasia, right? We know as the, as the viewers that they're talking about the, the boy Bastion, he's up, he's beyond the bounds of Fantasia reading the book. And so, um, and then the wolf says there are no boundaries right. to Fantasia. Right. And then, um, and then the boy kills the wolf. Right. That that clip ends with the the wolf saying that you know the reason why the nothing is taking over is because there you know people have no hope. They they don't read. They don't you know. They don't believe anymore. You know, they're, they, they're they, not... they have, they have no hope and they've forgotten their dreams. Right. So, so it's two things, what she said. So the, and the, therefore, you know, the world of dreams is, is becoming empty. And, um, sorry, what was your question? So, okay. So before we go into that, I want to know how this ends and then I want to oh, go right. back. So he says so that people he, who, people who are, uh, have no hope are easy to control and you know basically uh says that 
that's how we have all the power. And he kind of looks up in the sky as the lightning strikes. And that's when Atreyu says, you know, well, if I'm going to die, you know, you're going to die with me or something to that effect. And the wolf pounces on the boy uh, and this like sharp rock had just crumbled from a wall next to Atreyu a moment earlier. So he picks up that rock and, you know, once the smoke clears, you see the wolf is dead and the boy is wounded but victorious. And that's when the luck dragon comes and picks him up and they go off to the ivory tower. And when they are, and, and I want to go back to what, what we just said, but I want to know where this, the, the luck dragon picks him up. They go to the ivory tower and then does he give the queen a new name? Exactly. So, and this, you know, becomes the end of the movie when, you know, they're, they're Atreus at, in the ivory tower with the queen. And it's another moment of like, well, what are we going to do? How are we going to stop this? And, and the queen's like basically pl- laying it out in plain English, English. And the, the queen is, is just a, you know, girl, the same age as Atreyu. Um, and, and yeah, Bastion, it's on him to give the queen a name. And it ends with this sort of scene in a dark room where the queen, the character in the book is handing Bastion a glowing grain of salt and says, you know, this is all of Fantasia right here. And all you have to do is rename it. And she hands him this glowing grain of sand and he sort of thinks to himself and, and it seems like he makes like a wish or something, you know, and, and then the, the screen goes black and next thing you see, Bastion flying on the luck dragon and he's flying through, you know, the world. And then he flies through the street that he was on when the bullies were chasing him. And then he flies over the bullies and and scares the bullies and they jump in the same dumpster that they threw him in, you know, closing the, the sequence of events on that. But yeah, the, the basic gist of it and you never hear the name because the idea is that he names this new world after his deceased mother right so he kind of it's this like drawn out heart touching moment at the end of the movie where you know he figures out that he has to rename the story you know and give the this world a, a new name and the world is the story and the story is connected to his life he lived through it as a treyu as the warrior right as the mighty warrior all right so so <laughs> uh this is uh, uh I, I think this is this is a really interesting and and uh is a great story and um and it is one of those films, you know, you said it was made in, and I guess a book as well, but it was, but, but the film probably has a much wider uh, uh, influence just in terms of the number of people who see it. It's probably going to be greater than the number of people who've read it. Um, it's, it's got a little bit of staying power despite maybe it's, it's, um, it's dated, it's dated technology. Like, you know, it looks like a, a movie from the eighties. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason why it, it, it has staying power 
is because it, uh, the, the story of it and then the techniques of it, they work. They're effective. Right. They're effective. So that being said, uh, so what's your, your takeaway from the whole film? You were was... going with the, the Native American aspect, but then, you know, include that into what, what you brought out of it. Well, I found the, the names of the characters over um, four or five times had the either the prefix or the suffix more, which was interesting. Um, I'm, I kind of thought of the word M-O-O-R, but, I mean, people can interpret that. In any way, the the author was a German author, so that might be you know because of because of that he he's naming things from a sort of German mind. But I don't know. I I definitely feel like it's a it's a write your own reality kind of book. And I thought when I was watching it, it fit really into the whole ARG thing and how you know you can you can create your own reality and it's not necessarily um when you do it yourself it's not necessarily manipulated right because i think the point that we're we've been trying to make is that the world society the empire whatever you want to call it is is in the process of creating your reality for you or making it really easy for you to get into one type of reality and stories and books like this show people how they can change their life in a way that suits who they want to be on an idealistic level, who you see yourself as in the world rather than what just, you know, the amalgamations of your circumstances has left you with. Yeah, definitely. That's a, that's a, um, <laughs> That's a good way of that's a good way of putting it. Um, what I what I find so intriguing about the the story you just told us was um, like how it works in so many different levels, and how I'm going to say it's very applicable to what everything which we've been talking about in these conversations, and and so what I mean by that is is what. Well, first off, we, we kind of painted in the be the beginning, like the the techniques, and it's it's true with with all movies you watch, with all books you watch about how you the reader becomes engrossed into the story, and they begin to identify with characters. Right. And this movie, they they kind of they they told you um, that this is what's happening, which makes it an even more effective way of doing that. That's going to happen no matter what. But when they're kind of telling you that this is what's happening with all of these more subtle things, which we described with the, with the bookseller, like it, it, it enhances the effect. And so now we're going to go and we see that's happening. And, um, we recognize that as, we recognize that as a, um, a modus operandi, a, a technique of how um, reality is created, like inner world and outer world. And it's being very, uh, you, it is encouraging, you know, the, an awareness to become very aware of what your outer world is going to be, of what your outer world is, because it is this outer world in which you are going to go and 
have your your journey, your story. Your story, your the outer world and your inner world are going to be linked, and the outer world can be any outer world. Whatever the outer world is, whatever part, whatever reality you are putting in, and I'm just talking like being a regular human being, that is going to become your story. That is where your character is going to play out. And your character is going to play, is going to go through the same sort of journey. You know, that's a, the, another aspect of what was being um, told in the never ending story is like, you know, it's one journey and one challenge after another, after another, after another. And they, they, um, as you pass each challenge, whether that be of the sadness or of courage or of pure heart, you know, there, each one comes with like, you know, you're leveling up, you get a little bit more. Uh, and what's most interesting is, um, we could see how the challenges, which we were not ready to face early on, we will get another opportunity to face them as we've gained the strength through the lesser challenges. And what we saw with that was with the first meeting of, of the wolf and he was not ready to fight the wolf yet, but then he went through the other challenges, that of sadness, the challenge of, 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 of courage. And then eventually he could go back and fight the wolf again. And the luck dragon is always just like, you know, it's there when you need him. And, but there's certain things which you're going to do without it, but the luck, luck dragon is always there. And, and that's kind of, that, that is a motif and a, a, a context to look at all life uh, which all human beings kind of go through. That's kind of the human, you know, uh, the hero's journey, if you will. Um, and that, though, being tied in, you're going to do your hero's journey in whatever outer reality, whatever book you are putting that in, whether you are in a corporate world and you're, you're going through your journey there, or whether you've like, you know, dropped out of society, you're going to go through your journey there, whether you're going through the, the, um, the, the worldwide pandemic narrative, like you're going to go through these kind of different things, but, but decide, decide what you're going to go. And you have the, the capability of deciding what you're going to go and, um, and have that journey within. And I'll even go back and say that, 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 that smirk, that glimmer of knowing which the book seller had when he enticed the boy, what he did was he enticed the boy to read this book, which is saying like, hey, <laughs> you know, this is where you I'm going to go and make you want to go and dive into this story because I know this is going to happen. And, you know, maybe that's that's for the, the better or the worse of, of for the boy. But nonetheless, he was brought in to a particular story, a particular false reality in which he could go and have his real storyline. So all that being said, though, let's go back to where we are in 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 our our storyline as as a as a, <laughs> a collective right now with what's going on in the world um we're seeing it like kind of breaking apart and this is kind of we're getting this opportunity to rename our world you know this is something we talked about before you know the renaming of it the metaverse this is a renaming of where we're going in one in one aspect but this is limited into that particular um into that particular uh, false reality narrative. If we're going to step out of that and go into the other things which you and I talk about here, which is going back to baseline reality, going back to, to something outside of the collective false reality, which is being told to us, and looking at it in, in a new light, in a new light, um, 
and and renaming it, whatever you want that to be. Like that's also being communicated within this this movie. This movie is going to go, and this is true with all with all things, this movie is going to give the viewer exactly what they're looking for, but it's going to give them this experience of this type of, of enhanced hero's journey. Um, but regardless of where they're going to apply what the, the new world, the new fantasy, uh, uh, the new dream world is, um, the viewer is going to go and, and link themselves onto. And then the last kind of like secondary or tertiary sort of things which were being communicated in this is, you know, you're going to feel alone. You're not going to have a mother. You're not going to have a father. But at the same time, you're always going to have these like sort of grandparents or these support structures, maybe in places that you don't necessarily expect, but you're not alone, but this is your journey. So that was that was kind of what I took out of that. Like, I mean, this 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 story is is to me, both like a, a, a little bit of a warning, a little bit of, of a clarity, but at the same time, something which is really kind of encouraging and empowering to like, you know, stepping into this idea of, of being conscious of your life, whatever that may be, is part of this hero's journey, which just goes on and on and on. You know, that's the never ending story as well. Yeah, that's where it began for me, going through the, the Joseph Campbell lecture series as I was washing dishes and and, and uh, going door-to-door as a Citizens Campaign for the Environment canvasser back in 2014 or so. When I learned about all that Joseph Campbell stuff, it connected so deeply to the kind of conspiracy, esoteric, occult, stuff that I had just brushed by as like a high schooler, you know, pre uh, college and then in college for a couple of years, I would find stuff like that. And it wasn't until I learned about the hero's journey and the occult and, and the whole, really the whole Joseph Campbell's lectures. I listened to every single one of them. I mean, <laughs> like I said, washing dishes and it it put everything together and now i see when i watch movies like the never ending story it is kind of like a there's like a backbone to a story like this and on top of it i saw kind of the motif of native american uh the plight of the native americans and then also the the realization that we're all human beings and that we just need to rename, you know, I don't know if that makes sense, but it just, it definitely felt like somebody was influenced by that and put that into the film. Or maybe I'm just biased and I've just been researching that kind of stuff lately. So, well, well, the, the, the bias is, uh, there's a truth to the fact that, uh, the looker will always find what they're looking for, which is, that's another way of saying like there's, but maybe in a a little bit softer ways of like, we have bias. And that is part of this whole sort of like inner world, outer world connectivity. And even if you could train your mind, and some people do this is they want to train their minds so that they're not looking for anything. So they're not looking for anything. And that's certainly one way to be. But once you begin to accept that part of the human experience with consciousness is like, well, yeah, there are, there are biases. And, 
and the the particular bias which which you know I hold, which you hold, which anyone holds, like you know that's the thing we're looking for, you know. And if you and another way of saying it, that's the lens. And as you become more and more conscious and more and more and discern better of of what what it is which is going to be your lens of what you're going to withdraw from wherever you place your attention. For you, in, you know, what you've indicated in this conversation is that you naturally are going to understand um, things and are looking for these, these Native American symbols to you. Um, and it probably goes much, much deeper. You know, we're, 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 we're taught to, we're taught to look at other cultures and we put them in a different box. And so they're different than us and we can't really talk about it, but you're, I think going a little bit deeper in terms of your lens and, and looking at ways which other human beings, um, interacted with their environment, with reality, uh, which is different than ours, which is not like, you know, quote unquote, civilized and, and, and polished off in the way which all things in which our modern culture is. And so, uh, I think that's a great way, uh, a great way to go and, and, and a hopeful way and an empowering way to go and view things. And it's just recognizing like that's kind of how you like to, what you are able to extract from, um, from watching something just like I painted the picture, you know, I'm what, what my lens is, is false realities and baseline realities and stuff like that. And I saw the same sort of, or I, I listened to the same, the same story that you saw and I'm going to go and pull out the things that, that are, um, empowering or interesting or, or, or I'm biased for, you know, we all just do that. But what's cool about this particular one is how evident it is about this universal story, which is the hero's journey, which each person goes through. And so I'll say one last thing before I stop talking and give you an opportunity, which is just the other day, like I, I saw something which was like a depiction of, you know, uh, 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 non-civilized, a non-civilized um, culture. And it was showing people like, you know, living lives as it, if they were not living um, in our modern world. And I started thinking, I was like, uh, what, imagining a different, a different time, a different culture. And I'm like, what is that person's hero's journey like? What is that? If, if you, you know, and ultimately going back to what would mine be if I were in that situation, but like, what would it be? You're still going through these same basic things of, of tests and trials of whatever time and place you would be living. You know, that's going to be the human experience. But how would it be different? Where would you find meaning and so forth in these different cultures or these different times? I find that really, really, uh, uh, um, a, a fun and and inspiring way to kind of play within my own uh, fantasia, imaginary dream world. Exactly. That brings me to what I was just realizing as you're saying that something that really incredible happened to me. And, you know, Tara and I, when we drive around, that's exactly what I'm sort of feeling like is is, oh, I wonder what this looked like 100 years ago. Or I wonder if that was here 200 years ago. And, you know, because we drove through our, home, you know, same area, same town, and found a 
immense, huge, five, six-ton boulder the size of a car just, you know, off the side of the road in someone's yard on a particularly, like, steep hill and several other rocks around it. And it looked like it had been chipped away at for a couple years, like people had been taking blocks of stone off of it or... Or maybe it just looks that way naturally, you know? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know if this was before or after we watched the movie, uh, but Tara and I watched that movie this week, and then we went on a little trip just driving around, and we saw a falcon perched on a rock wall. And this falcon was like 10 less than 10 feet away from the road and it's a it was it's a very busy road through a sort of country atmosphere you know but people are are going from one place to another and they speed down this road so we kind of we saw this falcon so close to the road we pulled over uh down a little side street did a u-turn and then came back around stopped and, and pulled over and just talk took a nice long look at this falcon and it just stayed there i mean it we were close to it. We were like eight feet away from it, looking at it, and it didn't didn't bother, you know, it one bit. So we're like, "Oh, what's going on over here today?" You know, this is an indicator that there's some kind of energy in my, you know, just from my perspective. Birds are cool. I like seeing birds. You usually don't see one sitting on a rock wall, only one foot above the ground, you know, in front of somebody's yard on a on a busy street. So we kind of stopped and, and like marveled at it and then went up this road that we might not have gone down because of it. And I again, more huge stones. So I get out of the car to look at this stone that was piled on top of another stone. And I say piled now because at first I was really excited. I'm like, oh, wow, this is a this is a huge boulder uh, pedestaled against another boulder. You know, this is a part of the sort of uh, stone structure research I've been doing lately. So I've been looking for these sorts of stone structures, you know, and I found one. And then as I got closer to it, I looked and I saw a huge, huge hole drilled through one of them. And I said to myself, boom, there's an indication that this is a modern structure, right? Because the hole was just so perfect and clean that it must have been done by a machine. And it makes sense that when they built the road that this was next to, that they might have had to pick that stone up and, and get it out of the way. So instead of, you know, going too far with the, uh, you know, pattern seeking and saying, oh, this has to be a pedestal boulder built by, you know, an ancient culture, I find that indication that it's more modern and i'm able to dismiss it there i think that's kind of you know as disappointing as it might be sometimes if you don't operate with that level of discernment it's just going to end up ruining the whole the whole point of the research right so you know it kind of sucked to go back to the car and be like, "Hey, Tara, sorry, not a ancient structure. Let's go." But at the, you know, at the same time, if I, I I'm not going to pretend like it is. Like, what's the what's the point in that? That's going to ruin all of the significance when we actually do find one. Exactly, exactly. And and you know, you're you're 
your your uh, your lens is beginning to become much more focused in terms of what you're looking for. And so, uh, as they say, you do got to kiss a lot of frogs before you get that prince, right? So, <laughs> so like you need to go. So when you go and you see something, when you go and see something which truly cannot be explained away, um, you know that. You have already gone through that discernment process through your own experience, you know, looking at a lot of things that look close and and did not necessarily um, pass the test of authenticity. Exactly. Yeah, it was uh, it was cool to to see the falcon, though. And and yeah, the stone structures are definitely, you know, become they've become a big theme in the past few months for me. But I think. uh, you know, talking to Peter tonight is going to bring that uh, into more clarity because that's how that's how he started on his journey as a stonemason. He had he became a, a stonemason, and that's when this uh, you know idea to map these ancient sites got into his mind, and then from there he discovered you know geography, or at least you know discovered that this existed, and and went and and pursued mapping out New England's sacred sites and finding all of the ley lines in New England. So I'm excited to to speak with him later on today and, uh, yeah, and see what happens. Well, well that's, a, um, that's a, a perfect example of where you put your consciousness you know, wherever you wherever you make that link with the outer world, you know, your inner world with your outer world, um, you are going to go and have your story uh, unfold within that context. And so the there is a responsibility on the individual for their own inner world for you know how open they are to what things are. And, and that's part of this dynamic between the inner world and the outer world and creating reality. But we are going to assume, or I'm going to, I'm going to assume that, that Peter was already a, um, came into his experience with, um, working with the stone with a, with a certain maybe mystical or at least open mind perspective. And so when he literally started working with stone with his hands and he is putting into his consciousness, like, you know, everything that it requires to cut stone and to prepare stone. And then also the artistic quality of like, well, how am I going to put it out for whether it's a wall or whatever it is that I'm building? What happens is the consciousness starts to go and blend with that medium. And then it will bring you to places which you are not going to see, or you could not, uh, uh, you cannot predict. Um, and in this example is what you just said would be uh, his then work with understanding a, uh, an internal drive to want to begin to map these structures, these, these structures. And then um, that would be where it brought him. And so that's an example. And I know that I've had that same experience working with wood and then, um, and then how that has changed my relationship with, with, um, with trees, if you will. And so it's, it's, it's fascinating to be able to see the same pattern occur over and over with, uh, with human beings. Like, you know, it's not like unique to one person as much as it is. This is how we work. Indeed. Well, 
I feel like I uh, I don't ask this enough. What's been up, Mike? How's your week been? I feel like I always I always get into my week and like I'm so interesting. People are probably like, this guy Mark never shuts up. Let Mike talk. Well, I think I do plenty of talking in these conversations, but I do like I do enjoy the the process of listening to your stories and then and then reflecting upon them and necessarily telling my own. But I know I have told a bunch in the past. You have, you have. This past week, I don't... All right. So the majority of my time, I, I don't think I, I've really done anything too noteworthy in the past week, but the majority of my, my mental time is I am... And, and this ties into everything which we're talking about. Uh, I have been working on a presentation which I want to give on the Facebook metaverse. Same thing which we were talking about last week. Right. And I've been – this it requires a lot of work. I've been doing one of these presentations for probably six weeks now. But when I go and I put together all the slides and so forth. And so – uh, it requires a lot of, of, of work in terms of how gathering the information, creating the slides, and then also thinking about, like, you know, how is this story going to unfold, the story which I'm going to tell? Because it usually begins with, with an instinct and a couple of, like, real obvious, like, okay, there's something here and there's something there. But then when you go through the process of, of putting the, the slides together. And, you know, this is a little bit of inside baseball telling you, you know, how this works, but you have to think through, well, how am I going to go from this slide to that slide? What, where, where does this storyline go? And it becomes the resolution becomes much, much greater. So the past week I have been heavily in that world, like, you know, putting this together. I haven't recorded it. I think I'm going to record it tomorrow uh, and hopefully have it, uh, out in a couple of days of this recording. But what, what also is going on, and I think I, I talked a little bit about this as well. So one of the, one of the, um, <laughs> this really ties into everything that you're saying about the rocks. Uh, one of the pieces of, of the, story which I'm putting together on the metaverse is the fact that the presentation just looks fucking fake. Like the, what's supposed to be real life Mark Zuckerberg is obviously not a real person, whether it's uh, a real person with a uh, computer uh, enhancement uh, or whether it's completely fake. I don't know, but I just know that that's not a real person. It's very obvious. You look at the lighting and just, but no, it's not natural. <clears throat> and so I've been, <laughs> I've been playing with this idea. I've been playing with this idea uh, for, well, I'll take a step back. So part of the story in which are, are which I'm going to be putting together in this presentation is talking about our, about just the whole nature of, of, of false realities and so forth, coupled with the fact that just as be human, being a human being, we have certain blind spots which are in our experience. You know, that would be the role of the subconscious. That's a huge blind spot. Or, you know, the, the way that our, our senses can be manipulated to make us think or see something which is not there. You know, that's a blind spot. And, and just not knowing 
who we are, how we got here, where even here is, you know, these are all blind spots. Like, and what I mean by that is like, we don't really know how big of a hole that is. It could be very small. It could be very big. Who knows? Um, so I'm thinking about all this sort of stuff. I'm looking at, at the metaverse being rolled out and all these, you know, what, what, what's seemingly being put out there. And then I've just been having so many weird things just disappear. And I think I've talked about this with you, um, which uh, I talked about that book. I was like, I, this is a book. This is a really significant book. I wouldn't lend this book out, but I couldn't find the book. We talked about that two conversations ago. Uh, I think I mentioned to you about the crystals. There are two, I have, I've got, you know, hundreds of rocks. I'm a rock guy. And there are three crystals, which are my personal ones, which I have a special bag and I like to carry them around and so forth. I've had for years. And I said, they disappeared. Like it's not normal for them to disappear. Somewhat normal for me to misplace things, but I tend to always find everything if I've misplaced it. Um, and then it keeps on happening. Like more and more, like just small personal things of mine are disappearing. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, all right, I'm talking about blind spots. And if I'm really going to be honest with myself, I have to recognize I've got blind spots. And, and what I'm talking about, what I mean by blind spots is blind spots within, you know, the reality, which I'm living in. And I'm talking about all of these videos, or I'm, I'm doing this, this presentation about, about how false realities are, are created. And, you know, particularly technology induced false realities that seem to be real. And then I'm like, has the false reality already slipped into my world? Is this why I can't find all of these, these small personal things? <laughs> because that's the whole idea behind these false realities is that all of the, the, like the broad stroke replica can be uh, duplicated. But the smaller things which, which only exist within your head, <laughs> which could not be picked up by Alexa or any of the algorithms, they're not going to know what my favorite book is. They're not going to know what my favorite sock is. I'm like, have they not passed over? So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying that's happened. I, in fact, I think that's low probability that that's happened. But I'm also open to the idea, oh, is that really going on? Is this what it would look like to recognize that something false has been placed on your consciousness? And so, as you said with the rocks and like the holes, it's like, I'm just kind of at the place, I'm looking for all those holes. But that's what, that's where I've been in the past week, just kind of playing around with those ideas. <laughs> yeah. I've been there. I don't know. I feel like uh you know, you are in a house with uh several young ones. Maybe they're they're to blame, but I don't want to blame the children. I'm well, sure they're well behaved. Well, well, I'll so I've gone down all I've gone down my checklist. I've gone down my checklist of of logical explanations for these things. And certainly some of those things that have missing could be explained by that. I don't think that's the case, but that is a possibility. But um, the socks, I mean, the socks are very, a little bit of insight into Mike's world. I really have special attachments to special socks. Like I like socks. <laughs> and so I know if a sock, like uh, what socks I like to put on more than the other socks. And so when, when they're missing, like, you know, a child wouldn't take my socks. That's Maybe the book, and the crystals, 
I don't know. Maybe yeah. someone's breaking in. Maybe I'm just losing my mind, Mark. There uh, is always that as a possibility. Ha- has has there been any new strange gifts? Because there was the the gift giver that was somewhat mysterious that you thought you might be kind of able to pinpoint somewhat. I don't want to bring that up if that's a topic. I have not. I I have not heard. I have not received the gift for many months. This is like this is like scary stuff, but I would just I don't know, wild imagination has me thinking one day you're going to receive a package with all those things in it. Oh my god. That would be fantastic. And the, the most ironic thing would be if that happens that there's some sort of indication that I sent it to myself. <laughs> well then now we're dealing with a full-blown Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Wan situation. Well, it could, that could be a possibility, and maybe this describes the same sort of thing. But, um, but there, there's the uh, the idea has certainly crossed my my uh, my mental table of um, you know a future version sending things to myself. Right. That's that's what just came to mind for me, or or even. Uh, maybe wilder a parallel you who's in a who's in an even further like a not further in time but like further in like progression of what we would consider like a, an apocalypse like we're somehow in the the middle version and there's the there's the two extremes on either side there's like the apocalypse hellscape then there's like the apocalypse heavenscape and then we're somehow in the middle so, so I mean, so I think those are great questions, and I ask them to myself all the time. You know, and, and these go down down to like, well, what is the nature of, of this reality of this experience? And I don't have answers to that. But um, what what I did want to say, well, oh, I just lost what I did want to say. What I did want to say was because um, you brought up um, uh, it'll come to me in a moment. But but you're right. Those are all the this the certain questions which, which pop in my mind and being able to hold that sort of discernment of not going nuts. Right. Well, of, of not going down like a, a, a paranoid path of not going down also like a, a blind path as well. Well, I think it comes down to, to purpose. I was just having a conversation on the, the shadow band podcast. Um, and they, you know, we, we got off to talking about synchronicity right away. And I've kind of been saying this a lot lately that, like, you know, the way to know if these synchros are leading you to the right place or not is is whether, like, are you living your life aligned with love? Are you, is there something that you're giving back to the world? And I think if if that's, you know, what you're aiming for is to make the world a better place or make yourself a better place and then therefore make the world a better place through making yourself a better person, um, you know, I think the synchronicities naturally are going to harmonize with that cause and lead you down a path of abundance rather than lack. You know, it's kind of like the... Because people... I get this a lot, and even folks that write into this show who talk about synchronicities and want to hear more about synchronicities, and I think if you're experiencing synchronicities, 
especially if you're experiencing them in conjunction with the types of things we're talking about, it may be because you're being led to change your life and subsequently change the world into a better place, which I think is the, you know, the idea with alchemy, which is why synchronistically, you know, our friendship is so cool. And, you know, one thing that's kind of come up on this podcast is John Winthrop Jr. Well, I don't know how deeply I got into that, but the whole reason I even thought of, you know, this in the first place was thanks to Greg Carlwood's podcast and a, a guest he had on who, I mean, I, I cannot remember who it was and it was an older episode, but they mentioned offhand, I think it might've been Chris Bennett, actually, the guy who writes about cannabis and the cult history of cannabis. But somebody mentioned that there was an alchemist who was the governor of Connecticut. So naturally, that being my home state, I got really fascinated and, and started looking into the governors, and I never found anything because I was looking at the list of governors post-United States. I wasn't looking into colonial times, right? So, so it wasn't until recently when I just started looking into this time period for other reasons that I found out about John Winthrop Jr. and alchemy and how he was an alchemist. And just two days ago, uh, a book came in the mail, and it was addressed for Tara. And I gave it to her, and she said, oh, no, it's a gift for you. <laughs> and what she, what she got me was this really awesome book all about John Winthrop Jr., alchemy, and the creation of New England culture. And it talks about how, you know, people, historians, you know, used to think that, well, because Puritans were in New England, there was no magic. It was just religion, and, and they had this sort of false binary opposition of religion versus magic. And since New England's Puritans had no tolerance for magic, they assumed that they wouldn't have any tolerance for alchemy. But, you know, back to our larger point here, the whole point of alchemy in these people's minds at this time period was to find inspiration from God to make the world a better place through technological revelation, so to speak, because these guys were looking for minerals, different materials, and then creating new inventions. So when they would find something that would work, they wouldn't credit themselves. They would credit God and say, oh, wow, I was inspired by God to find this and then create this invention. And I thought that was a really neat concept and it kind of fits into everything with the never ending story and, and exactly what we were just talking about with, with reality and how you shape your own reality and you can kind of pull things out of the ether. You could pull things out of the ether. Um, and I find it very intriguing that you're going to be putting your consciousness deeper and deeper into the, the, formulation of life in New England. You know, just by reading that book and by thinking about him and by becoming more and more aware of a uh, precedent, a precedent of a person making influence in the world, in the same terror that you live. I think that's kind of interesting to watch. Um, and I do agree with you about, um, about the how it ties into the whole hero's journey sort of sort of piece 
and maybe uh, I can um, I could uh, go back to then what what I was suggesting before, like you know, just like asking all of these sort of questions and looking at my own life in this this kind of strange sort of way, um, and and my own hero's journey, me as an individual going through my life. Uh, so in two weeks is my 50th birthday and there's an eclipse the very next day. There's an eclipse the very next day. So there's an eclipse on my 50th birthday. And what I like to practice in my own personal life is what I call the, is what I call objective astrology. And what that primarily is, is like position of planets and so forth less about signs, more about positions in the, in the material world. And so most transits, you know, when something happens over your a placement on your natal chart, they mark different, uh, there are different time markers on an individual journey. And so to have an eclipse on your 50th birthday, I'm not certain what that's going to mean. And I'm not going to put my, I'm not going to put any sort of, uh, qualifications on what I think will happen. But I certainly am aware of the timing of this marker in the, in the, the map of the key moments of my life and uh, everything which is going on. And I find that a very, very um, uh, exciting and sort of empowering way to, to view one's own path. I think that's incredibly synchronistic. I mean, come on, Mike. The the eclipse a day the next day. Mm-hmm. And and the the um is there any astrological significance to this eclipse? Like what what's the sign that it's in? I mean it's it, it depends upon if you're gonna use tropical or citral. So tropical is what most people are familiar with, and so that would be happening in Sagittarius, but if it's sidereal, it'd be happening in, in Scorpio, right. um, which is one of the reasons why I less on le- for me, I pay less attention to the sign and more intent, more, uh, more significant on, on placements. Like regardless, it's showing a, an eclipse and what an eclipse is, is the, a perfect alignment of earth, moon and and sun in such a way that the the visual effect for us on earth is that the sun and the moon are in the same place right and that's going to be at the same place where in the same place in the heavens where the sun was when i was born and so whatever that means and that's a significant thing you know that's lined up likewise there are other key things and if you really you know when i look at at the chart if i'm going to go look at my own i look at what else is in alignment uh at the same sort of time and uh the the nodal points and this is just kind of like astro geek stuff you know if you're not into astrology this may not be meaningful to you but but the nodal points are of significance particularly as it relates to one's life path and the, the nodes are also aspected by other planets. So I can begin to see a, the, the hallmark of a significant change in one's life. And so I don't know what that's going to be. 
And maybe this is all just like maybe 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 this doesn't happen. But 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 what it's doing, and particularly looking at this, this is a you know this is as real as it gets in the fact that I can look at like charts and numbers and see planets in the sky. But then it's giving me this context of of saying, okay, anticipate just as what you were saying before, uh, uh, a significant change in one's life. I can see a lot of. A lot of good things on the horizon, if if that's what's coming. I mean, hundred, <laughs> there's hundred, a lot in place. Hundreds of thousands of downloads on this Susquehanna Alchemy podcast feed. Let's. let's so I see it. I see it more so as something more. I don't even know what I see. I see it as something more fundamental than that, like a change in me and how I meet the world. Okay. And so I don't know what that necessarily means yet. But I think it's going to be very much like I don't know. I don't know. I'm uh, uh, I'm excited for the future. As as they said, without hopes and dreams, it just goes into the void. That's exactly the moral of the never ending story. Well, I think that's a that's a good place to take uh, take this one in. Unless you have any messages that came in uh, in the past week or so. Uh, other than that, no, no. Um, I think that that was, I agree with you. That feels like a good place to to wrap this 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 episode up. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you, Mike, as usual, and thank you for listening to your handbook for the apocalypse right here on the Susquehanna Alchemy podcast feed. And if you're listening on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast feed, that's okay. Go over and give. Susquehanna Alchemy follow. We just put the 40th parallel series on there. When's the next 40th parallel coming out, Mike? Uh, that's a good question. As of right now, there is nothing on the books, but I'm certain something will come up shortly. Awesome. Awesome. So you can look I, into been, that as well. I've been put, I've been, I, <laughs> I, I'm waiting to get through my eclipse. Well, we're all excited for that now. Very, very exactly. With if I, if okay, I said I want to, I want to wrap this up. There's one last thing I want to throw out there, and then, and then we'll we'll leave that. The other thing which had popped in my mind is we've been, we've been talking about all these strange things, and maybe this is what we can discuss next time. Is did you ever see the video? I said it to you a while ago, and I don't think we ever discussed it. Of the guy who is seemingly making videos in a completely empty Barcelona. I think it's Barcelona. Some it's a I think it's a city in, in Spain. Right. Yeah. You know, he's showing, have you seen those? He's showing how it's possibly uh future. Well whatever that may be, I want to go and talk about that some more. Okay. Alright. I'll revisit that video. Alright, alright my friend. Cool. Right on. Thank you for listening to the show, folks. Like I said, give us a subscribe, follow, and all the places. And Mike's got a subscribe star with some extra bonus content. So hit the link in the description if you love Mike's stuff. Peace out.